0: everybody this morning. Welcome to you who are visitors with us today. Um, We are actually getting ready to start a new sermon series for the summer. We're going to be looking at the book of First John. But before we do that, um, join me in praying for the word of God this morning. Lord, um, we want to take a moment now. Uh, There's been a lot going on this morning. We thank you for the wonderful things that made this morning busy. And that, Lord, um, we can be a blessing to others, that we could send our teenagers out, and that we can um, really have a deep sense that as we give, others can be blessed. So thank you for these wonderful things. We now, Lord, come to your word and how precious your word is, Lord. Thank you that in the midst of an insane world, your word brings sanity. Thank you that there is truth and a moral compass that we can not only believe in and trust in, Lord God. So thank you. And thank you that your word speaks to the inner depths of our hearts and to the very deepest needs that we have. And so as we step into the book of 1 John we ask that uh, through this summer, our hearts will be touched. We would be convicted. We would be transformed. We would become more like Jesus as a result of this word. So as I open up this morning in First John, Lord, thank you. Thank you that as I looked at this word, I was encouraged again. I was challenged about my own heart, and I was um In in many ways, Lord, there was a deep sense of uh, joy as I was going through this, and I'm so thankful for your word. Lord, I know that my words mean nothing apart from the Holy Spirit taking them and applying them and anointing them to our hearts. So I want to be out of the way, and I want the Holy Spirit to be here taking this word and speaking to each heart here. And we pray, Lord, at the end of this time, as not only we have the word, but we have the table to come to, we will be able to say today we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and we pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. First John. First John. Why First John? Well, I think that's a good question. Why First John? Well, let me ask a couple questions of us here today. How many of us here today have concern over disunity, discord in the church today? How many of us have concern? Yeah. How many of us have seen family, friends, and neighbors walk away from the faith or leave their church families? Yes, we could all say. How many of us have seen people they love or know be influenced away from the faith by worldly perspectives? How many have seen us that happen? Yeah. How many of us have seen angry and judgmental rhetoric between professing Christians in the different media platforms and personally? And how many of us have seen a loss of love between brothers and sisters in the Lord? We all can say in one way or another, we have seen these things happen and we have seen it certainly over the last few years intensify in many different ways. Well, the Apostle John is writing this letter around 90 A.D. The new church has been in existence for at least 70 years. There have been attacks from the outside and from the inside, and they are particularly over issues surrounding Jesus being both God and man, having a special revelation. They call that Gnostics, where they have a special new revelation, a new way of, of seeing things, a secret knowledge that only a few people have, uh, very much an elite type of faith, um, and there's this deep sense that this was causing disunity and discord in the church. It was causing church splits. Does that sound familiar? Yes, we're, we're seeing that. Um, and in our day and age, it could be over a numerous amount of things, right? Right? a political ideology becoming a matter of faith, a racial way and looking at things becoming a way in which I look at the scripture and, and, and by I, I can't be around people who might think a particular way. And we can go through the whole list of things that we've been seeing. But here is John and his job that God has given him at this point. John's probably in his 80s. The church has been around for about 70 years and he is the last remaining apostle. And if you're filling out your kid's outline, he was known as the apostle of love. His written ministry comes after the church has been in existence for several decades. There was was a need of a voice to call people back to the original foundations of faith. And it's John who's ordained to call us back, to mend the nets and set things straight. You know, it's interesting that when Jesus called John, unlike Peter, he was mending his nets when he was called. And so we see John as one who's been called later on in life to be the one who comes in and seeks to bring the mending that's needed in a church that's been frayed We can use Serge's little illustration here, frayed at the ends. That that whole idea, the church has been frayed at this point. People have been leaving. There's been discord and disunity. There's been false teaching. There's been persecution. And here is John, the only apostle left. And he's called to speak and to call people back to faith and what the faith foundations are. And that's what we're going to be looking at. And ultimately, in this book, that leads to living out the way of love, of being able to put God's love in action. That's what we're going to be looking at as we go through the summer. So um, I, I would suggest if anybody, how many of you have ever seen the Bible Project Overviews on different books of the Bible? Anybody? I, I would suggest that you uh, look at that. Um, I actually have it in the kids' outline. You can put it up just for a second. This is is a a graphic. They actually do a whole overview, but this is a a graphic, and um, you can see it sort of breaks the book down in a way you can begin looking at it. They go through that and do a really good job, but for the kids who are doing the kids' sermon, you need to circle the particular one that deals with what we're doing today, and if you're looking at that, Remember that we're doing verses 1 through 4. So if you're looking at that, that's what you're looking at. And that's what we're going to be talking about. So circle that. But this is just a wonderful way of getting an overview. And when they explain it, they do a great job. So I encourage you to go to Bible Projects and and to do that. You can take that down. So the letter of 1 John starts with four-verse preface. Basically, uh, almost a, a prologue that introduces the major themes of the letter. And we'll be looking at this preface this morning, first looking at the first two verses and then verses three and four. So the heart of the matter, 1 John chapter 1, verses one and two. Let me read it to you. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning The word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. So the first thing we see is this word, the beginning. And when John says beginning in this verse, he's not referring to creation, he is taking us back. The beginning before there was anything, when all there existed was God. So, if you're filling out the children's outline, this word of life that appeared was eternal and existed with the Father. In other words, before anything, before any of creation, there was the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and this word of life. Was then. And then when you go to John 1, verse 1 in his gospel, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You begin to see. So this is, get an idea of what he's talking about here. Something from eternity, from before creation. And then he goes into a testimony. He's bearing testimony. One of the things that Jesus said about the apostles and the disciples were they were going to be bearing testimony. They were going to be bearing witness. And this is what John is doing. And he says, the word of life. And what does he mean by that? The word of life means the creative self-expression of God by which the universe was made. He who existed from limitless eternity has entered into time and space and taken up residence on earth. This is, this is what he's talking about here. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Have you heard that scripture before? This is not imagined. It's not partial. John speaks graphically of all the sensory confirmations. What He says, we heard him. We saw him. We touched this word of life. This is not a, a word of life which is a message that is about life. No, this is, this is not a byproduct of some enlightenment or mystical knowledge. This is not the logical requirement of some theological system. John identifies this eternally existent being who was physically present with John and the other apostles as the word of life. God in the flesh. John declares, we heard him, we saw him, we studied him, and we touched him. So I just want to take a moment, and this is just a little chart that parallels the gospel of John with 1 John. Just just so you get an idea, look at this. In the beginning was the word what was from the beginning. The word was in God's presence, eternal life which was in the Father's presence. In him the word was life, the word of life. The life was the light of men, God is light. The light shines in darkness, for darkness did not overcome it, and in him there is no darkness at all. The word became flesh, this life was revealed, and made his dwelling among us, and was revealed to us. We looked at his glory What we looked at of his fullness, we have all received the communion we have with the Father, with the Son, and with Jesus Christ. You see how John takes these very themes that are a part of the gospel, and now he's bringing them back in a particular way where he's reaching into a church that has gone through so much over the last 70 years, and now he's bringing them back to the foundations of the faith. That's what he's looking at here. And a major part of this is the humanity of Jesus. That God actually did come in the flesh. How many of you have seen the TV series, Chosen? If you haven't seen it, I really want to encourage you. Get that. Watch it with your kids. That series... Does a remarkable job of expressing the humanness of Jesus. It's just very powerfully done. And sometimes we miss it. Sometimes we think Jesus was Superman. He was not Superman, he did not have an edge. When Jesus became man, he emptied himself of his glory and he showed us how to live a dependent relationship with the Father as truly human beings are supposed to or were intended to do before the rebellion of our own hearts. And this is where John goes with this. This is is where he's speaking about it. So I want to encourage you. um, You get an opportunity You can buy the series on YouTube. There's probably some free ways that you can get it. But but really look at it. It does a wonderful job of doing that. So what John is giving a testimony to is what we call, or the doctrinal word for that is called the incarnation. God becoming man in person of Jesus. And this is a scandal to the human heart. It's a scandal to the human heart. So just so we are aware, what I'm using as a definition of scandal. Scandal is an action or an event regarded as morally or legally wrong and causing general public outrage. Or a scandal applies to an offense that outrages the public conscience. And this is the scandal of the Incarnation. The human heart reacts. When God becomes a man, He strips away every pretense of humanity to be God. When He comes in the flesh, we no longer, if we truly know who this is, can say that we are God and God of our own lives. We can no longer do our own thing. We must do what Jesus wants us to do. We can no longer pose as self-sufficient because Jesus says we're all sick with sin and must come to him for healing. What does he mean by that, sick with sin? This word sin, what does that really mean? Oh, it means that our hearts basically say to God, I am the God of my own life. I want to do the things that I want to do. I am wiser about the things that I need than you are. And so I'm going to live my life for my own purposes, for my own pleasure, and for my own need. I am going to step out in the free will that you've given me, and I'm going to be the captain of my own ship. And in doing that, I have basically said to God, I have no need of you. Thank you for creating me, but I have no need of you, and I don't need to listen to you, and I'm going to do things on my own. That is what sin is. It's rebellion against God. It's the pride of the human heart. It's separating us from God, and when we separate ourselves from God, we no longer have the opportunity to step back until Jesus, the one who comes in the flesh. So recognize that. We can't depend on our own wisdom to find life. Because Jesus, who lived for 30 years in a little country in the Middle East, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Just as we sang, I am the way, the truth, and the life. How arrogant is this man? No, he's not arrogant at all. He's not arrogant at all. When God becomes man, man ceases to be the measure of all things. And he becomes the measure of all things. And this is intolerable to the natural rebellion of the human heart. The incarnation is a violation of the bill of human rights written by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And that's why there's this outrage that's why there's this outrage. It is a scandal to a heart that doesn't have the knowledge of God in it. It's a scandal. When you talk to people and they look at you and you start talking about Jesus and they get angry. And you're like, what is wrong with these people? Know that it's the scandal, of the incarnation, that this challenges us being God of our own lives. Well, who does he think he is? God? Yes! <laughs> Who does he think he is, God? Yes, he does. He is God. And that's powerful. 1 John 4, 2 says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit which confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit which does not confess Jesus is not of God. I think that's a pretty simple way that John is saying, listen, this is the litmus test. And only the spirit of God can break our rebellion against the particularity of the incarnation and the idea that This is something that particularly has happened in history. It's unique and it's particular to God himself coming in the flesh. And it's done by the absolute sovereignty of God. And it's done for our benefit. It's done so that we might know salvation. That the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts and opens us up in the rebellion of our hearts to see these things. And to know that through Christ, there is salvation. And it starts with the incarnation itself. Even this morning, how does your heart respond to that? How does your heart respond to the fact that we have one who is truly God, who is Lord of Lord and King of Kings, And he is the one that we go to, that we humble ourselves towards. I love what Irenaeus of Lyons says in the Scandal of the Incarnation. You have that quote in there. You can put that up. Myth and Christianity are opposed on every point. Myth seeks the ascent of man to spirit. The word of God seeks descent into flesh and blood. Myth wants power. Revelation reveals the true power of God in the most extreme powerlessness. Myth wants knowledge. The word of God asks for constant faith and only within that faith, a growing reverent understanding. Myth is the lightning that flashes when contradictory things collide. Absolute knowledge, eternal quest. The revelation of God's word is gentle patience amidst the intractable tensions of life. Myth tears God and the world apart by trying to force them into a magical unity. The revelation of God's word unites God and the world by sealing the distance between them in the very intimacy of their communion. This is very powerful because Gnosticism, the Gnostics, special revelation, they basically use sort of the myth way of moving through things. It's magical. It's mystical. It will bring unity. Um, and yet, here's the word of God, and I love what he says at the end, and the wor- unites God and the world by sealing the distance between them in the very intimacy of their communion. And it's this intimacy of communion and its joy that John says is the objective of his testimony and proclamation of Jesus as the word of life. See, this is the exact reason that he gives this testimony. It's because he wants to move us to understand the intimacy of communion and the joy that we have in fellowship. And let me read verses three and four, because this is what he moves to. We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father. And with his son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. And if you're filling out the children's outline, there's a couple of the answers coming up. See, fellowship is one of the most important realities in this letter. It is the ancient Greek word koinonia, which speaks of sharing a communion, a common bond, a common life. It speaks of living, breathing, sharing, loving relationship with another person. How amazing. John says that this fellowship, this communion, this intimacy starts with the Father and the Son. You getting that? With God himself. This is where it starts. An ongoing personal relationship with God the Father and Jesus the Son made possible by the gift of the Holy Spirit who was sent into the hearts of those who believe after Jesus ascended into heaven, having finished the work of redemption by his death and resurrection. This is the testimony. This is where it's leading to. This amazing, unbelievable, think about this. Can you imagine the people back in that day now they're told that you can actually have a personal, intimate relationship with God. The one that you couldn't even mention his name. The one who you tried to keep yourself away from and separate from. You now have the ability to have an intimate relationship with the God of the universe who says to you through Jesus, son and daughter, I love you. Speak to me. I delight to hear you. I want to have intimacy with you. I want a relationship with you. This is so powerful. And then it's from this relationship that we have with God the Father and the Son that we as believers have the same sharing and communion and common bond and life together. That's what he's getting at. So there's the vertical and there's the horizontal. And and here's the thing. The horizontal is impacted by the vertical. If the vertical is not something that's ongoing and alive, the horizontal is completely affected. If the vertical relationship with God is being hindered, then all of our relationships are impacted in the way we live our lives with people. Think about that for a second. Because when I have a vertical relationship with God, the first thing I live out of in that is there is a poverty of spirit in me. What does that mean? It means that I see myself, as Isaiah said, a man or a woman of unclean lips, that my heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, and that I have nothing, nothing at all to bring to God. I am humbled, and only because of what Jesus has done, and because of that, amazing work of redemption that there is now forgiveness and there is reconciliation and there is adoption as sons and daughters, and it's in that. When my, that is right, I'm going to God like that, then when I think of other people, I don't think of them in the same way. I don't judge them because I recognize that my heart is as wicked as theirs apart from the grace of God. I am capable of doing anything they have done or can do apart from the grace of God. So, as I work out of that relationship, it begins to move me down. And because I know that I have been forgiven much, as we learned in the Lord's Prayer, it makes me a person who is able to forgive in the same way that God forgave me. And relationships need forgiveness. Horizontal relationships need forgiveness. And you can keep going down in that relationship with God. When I know that God says, Do not judge because I will judge. It means that I then know, stand in judgment of other people. That he moves in me to be a person of mercy and justice as he is. It means my relationships with people comes out of a different mindset and perspective. Calls me to be a peacemaker, not a warmonger or a peacekeeper. What does that look like in horizontal relationships? You see, and it's only as this relationship is growing and intimacy that the Holy Spirit then is unleashed in my ability to be with other people and to love them in the same way that God loves me. And this is what fellowship is all about. Fellowship with the Father and the Son and fellowship with one another by God's grace. This is what he's talking about. This beautiful thing. We often want to see relationships changed. But it might mean that the reason I'm having struggle in my relationships is that I'm struggling in my relationship with the Father and the Son. How are you and I doing in that relationship, in the busyness of our lives? What kind of excuses do we make to stay out of the word of God, to stay away from prayer, to not be in fellowship with one another? Do we know that that's a tool of Satan to keep us from being the very people God has called us to be? For that which he asked in the Lord's Prayer, that actual heaven would actually be lived out on earth in the relationships that we have, and how desperately is that needed today? So Morgan says this in this quote, and you have it in your outline. Those who have a fellowship one with another are those who share the same resources and are bound by the same responsibilities. The idea becomes almost overwhelming when it is thus applied to the relationship which believing souls bear to the Father and to his Son, Jesus Christ. The Father, his Son, Jesus Christ, and all believers have all things in common, All the resources of each in the wondrous relationship are at the disposal of the other. Such is the grace of God and of his son. Do you you see what that means? That, That means that we are in a relationship with the God of the universe who shares everything that he has with us so that we can step into lives and into this world in the same way that Jesus stepped in. That's just unbelievable. You know, often in premarital counseling, we talk to people and, and we'll say, one of the things you learn in marriage is, is, that oneness is this idea that your partner has some strengths that are your weaknesses, and you have some strength that is your partner's weaknesses. Now, you can either be intimidated or irritated by that, or you can accept that as yours, and it becomes the two of you being more strengthened. And that's the same thing in our relationship with God. That's why we grow in that relationship. We become more and more like Jesus. And John isn't quite done yet, because then he says, the result of true fellowship is fullness of joy. John echoes what Jesus said to the disciples on the night before he died. He explained in John 15 the triangle of fellowship, union with Christ, that idea that we're now in union through the work of the Holy Spirit, abiding in Him, this idea of fellowship, abiding in Him, and experiencing the fullness of joy, a joy that's not based on circumstances, but is actually a joy that comes out of relationship. Let me just read to you Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. That word there is, again, the word for fellowship and communion. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, when you read that, there, there, you get a sense of the joy there, right? But there's something else that's a part of that joy. There's a real excitement isn't there? There's a sense that we are so excited. Look at what's happening in the midst of this, in the midst of our fellowship. Look at what God is doing. He's actually using us not only to love one another, but he's using us because of the way we're loving one another to be attractive and an influence to others that they would see Jesus and now they're coming into the fellowship. How amazing is that? And there's this sense of real excitement as if Here we are in fellowship that God is actually using us, and it is an excitement that goes to the depths that God is giving us. It's a joy of completeness. Think about this for a second. Maybe you've been a part where you've had the conversion experience of someone you've been sharing with. What's that like? What happens in your heart when someone you've been talking to says, I want to know Jesus as Lord and Savior? Your heart leaps. There's this amazing joy, but it's more, there's an excitement to that. So let's take this to another level. Yesterday, a cradle of hope was true fellowship. It was a common purpose. It was a communion of people who are out there serving in the way of love, to those who had a need. In the midst of that, I will tell you, even though I wasn't there, that there was great joy and excitement. Do I get an amen? Who was there? What's it like? When you're in a, in a situation like that, what's it like? Hey, Ken, what were your people like? Were they all sourpussed and they all sort of like hanging out? Or was there joy yesterday? There was a, little bit of joy. a little bit of joy. There was excitement. There was an excitement. Young people, you guys are on the stage. You're going on a mission trip tomorrow. Oh, man, I wish I was there. You know how many mission trips I've been on? 39. 39 mission trips in the city, in our country, and around the world. And every one of them ended with so much excitement and joy, because you, as a team, are going to to be out there, You're going to be having a common goal together. You're going to be in God's word together and fellowship together. You're going to be praying together. And then you're going to be stepping out together. You're going to be stepping into the pleasure of God. You're going to be stepping into true fellowship. And there's going to be this joy. I mean, when you get back, we want to hear your testimonies because there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. We're now part of the Liberty Communion of Churches. Part of this trip has Liberty Churches going. And one of the things about being a part of the Liberty Communion of Churches is that we're going to share this type of fellowship together. As a larger group, doing things together we can't do apart. Leaders are meeting once a month. We're praying together. We're seeing how each other doing in our lives. We're talking about the things that God wants us to do together. We're bringing our congregations together to do things. And we believe that as we do that, that true fellowship will move us, of course, into communion. But outside of communion, into the fullness of joy in doing those things. Look at small things and what Liberty is doing with that. And we're going to be a part of that in some wonderful ways. So I could go on. But we need to get the idea of what John is talking about here. See, this is true Christianity. This is Christianity 101. It starts with the scandal of the Incarnation and the testimony that says this is true. And then as we believe, the Holy Spirit then works in us because we can have true fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, which leads us to doing what Jesus would do. And what Jesus would do would be doing what now we're talking about is that blessing of others and one another. Because the love of God is living in and through us. Do I get an amen? That's an amen. And please don't make a mistake, okay? I'll leave you with this. Of thinking that the only way to have joy is to be free from pressure and problems. No, this is a transcendent joy. It happens in the midst of everyday circumstances and everyday pressures and everyday problems. See, God is using us to do his eternal work, and there's nothing more exciting than doing it with a neighbor, with a friend, with a family member, with a co-worker, with a group of brothers and sisters stepping into a situation having it start with my vertical relationship with God himself. And what a wonderful time for us to come to the table, to come to the communion table, to come to the table that celebrates this amazing fellowship that we have with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Just think about this table for a second. What is it calling us to? It's calling us to remember the things that we just heard, that God did not forget us, that God saw our great need. He knew the chasm between him and us by our rebellion and our pride and our sin. And there was only one way, and that was to send the mediator himself, Jesus Christ. That was to send Jesus He who was God to become flesh, to become the one and only mediator between God and man, the high priest who went on to the cross and died for our sins, a once for all sacrifice, that his blood purchased us, paid our debt, brought forgiveness and reconciliation with God, brought because of that adoption as sons and daughters that we can look forward to glory. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. These are the things that we remember at the table. When we come and in the present, the Spirit is saying yes and amen. Even as I say these words to your hearts, the Holy Spirit is saying yes, child of God. This is for you. When's the last time you reflected? When's the last time you remembered? When's the last time you understood God's love for you? I'm calling you back. This is your time to be refreshed of soul, to know forgiveness, and to look ahead to when He will come back. And when He does, He will bring us home with Him. This is what this table is all about. It's about that communion, that relationship. So we're going to enter into that. We're going to change it up today. We usually have people walk down for communion, but we're actually going to distribute it today, and I'm going to um, ask the Winters and the Stracuzzi's to come down on either side. And I'm going to ask you now to take a few moments, a few moments in prayer. Where is it that the Spirit's been moving your heart today? Maybe you need to say, Lord, forgive me for being so distant. I want to come closer. Maybe in your horizontal relationships, you, are, you have people to forgive. You have things that the Spirit wants you to do. Maybe you have such a deep pattern sin in your life that Satan is making you believe that you can't be forgiven. Don't listen to the lie. Come, know that forgiveness and know the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. This is that moment for you to come. Take some time now coming before the Lord.